Mic check, mic check. open up whoa if it, if it was that high I'd have to whisper the whole sermon in the beginning all right so let's let's uh, let's open up in prayer you bow your heads with me uh, father son and spirit we're so grateful Lord that that you have in your mercy um, come to us father uh, to rescue us from this wilderness and to bring us father into the land of ripe and fruit, Father. We pray, Lord, that as we come together as the body of Christ to worship, that we may be moved, that your spirit may take hold of us and help direct our lives towards you in worship, that we may be reminded that it is all of your doing, Father, that we are truly free because we need not earn your favor but your favor has been secured by your Son. So may we live in this reality, in this great truth, and see, Father, that the chains of legalism have been torn asunder, that we may live in love to our fellow man. Amen. So today's sermon is called Beauty Mark. It's continuing our Mark series. We're going to look at the passage Chapter 3, verses 13 to 21. The central truth of today's sermon is that today we will discuss the fourth set of Mark's gospel characters, who we named before as the servants or disciples, and they're charged to show the world the delicious, radiant beauty of the king and the kingdom of heaven. So to review for you guys, we've already gone through four sermons in our Mark series. The first one, we looked at punctuation marks. And in specific, we looked at the punctured one, or the Son of God and His coming into the world. And that's when we looked at Mark 1.1, and in there, Mark told us exactly what it is that he was um, going to be talking about in his gospel, which is that he wanted to present to us the Son of God. Could you move to the, uh, the, sl- the summary slide? You can go back, yeah. And then the other one. And then the second sermon, we looked at how Jesus fulfills these distinguishing marks in the Old Testament. Remember that? We had kind of like that, that um, mystery novel approach, and we talked about the new Exodus. And then in Mark 1, 16 to 20, what we did there is we talked about love, and that was on our love banquet. And in specific, what we, what we noted is the second major theme of Mark, which we're going to see fleshed out even more today, which is that he wants to tell us about the Son of God and the disciples, those who have been moved by God, what their responsibilities are, and the key image there was love. We asked the question, well, what's the distinguishing mark of a disciple? It's love, and it was was exemplified by Jesus, and we saw that in the the foot washing, and the last sermon I preached was... Mark 1, 21 to 28, and then all the way through three, uh, chapter 3, verse 12. And what we did there is we saw that all these characters that are going to be featured in the gospel were touched upon. Remember that? But there was one character we really didn't get to talk to. Does anyone remember what the three characters were? They all started with S. We had sinners. We had, we had well, saints. No, we, had, we didn't have saints. We had sinners. We had... But I'll take saints for what we're going to talk about today. The, yeah, seditionists, very good. The seditionists, that was the rebels. And then we had the, the Son of God. Did anyone go watch the movie last week? I didn't get to see it. Was it good? So, today we're going to talk about the servants. I mentioned them, but we're going to talk about the disciples because that's the fourth major character in the Gospel of Mark. And our scripture for today... Is going to be Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 21, and it reads as follows. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. 
And he appointed twelve, whom, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The central truth of the text is that Mark wrote, Mark 3, chapter, uh, 3 verses 12 to 21, in order to introduce the disciples of his gospel and to identify their responsibility to be shaped and sent out by Jesus. Oh, I'm going to have to start the sermon all over again. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you could go to the, the one with the picture. All right, so how many of you guys have ever bought something from Craigslist? Nobody has... Come on, put your hands up. All right, I don't know about you guys, but I always have like the same experience whenever it comes to buying anything on Craigslist, and that's like, okay, who am I going to find to go with me, right? Because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, and you would, honestly, you would think that if it was really that dangerous to buy stuff from Craigslist, we would be hearing all the time about people getting robbed and people getting murdered and stuff like that. And there was that one woman... And, you know, and who was in the news, who did actually, and she, and she claimed that she was part of a satanic cult. But it doesn't happen with much regularity at all. But anyways, as you guys have known, I've been shopping for a car, and I do not have a lot of time to do car shopping. And, you know, car shopping takes a lot of time. So I've been kind of going every now and then on Craigslist, and, I'm, and I have a very specific type of car. I wanted something that was not like a station wagon, but was kind of like a station wagon, but wasn't an SUV, but kind of was like an SUV, and kind of was like a sedan, and kind of like a minivan, and could fit seven to eight people. And there weren't many cars like that. The only car I found was a Mazda, Mazda 5, because my coworker just bought it, and he showed it to me because I helped him pick it up. I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know cars like this exist. It's perfect. It had the roof rails, and it could fit seven people, because my wife is not very you know, tall, so... I can't put her in like a big van because she literally can't reach the pedals. So this thing was perfect, but it was about like $9,000, $8,000 everywhere we went. But then I saw this thing on Craigslist, and it was a Ford Freestyle. I never even heard of that car, and I still haven't seen one on the road since. But it was a 2005 Ford, Free, Ford Freestyle, and it was for $5,000. And it was, from an, it was from an owner, which means I didn't have to pay the dealer fees. I was like, oh man, this thing looks perfect. It's black, I like black cars, it has a hatchback type look. And, and this thing was $3,500 underneath the blue book value. Okay, that's a lot. I mean, that's a steal. It had only 89,000 miles on it. So I was like, there's, there's gotta be something wrong, right? Right, there's gotta be something wrong. So I went over, I drove over with my wife, and I was actually gonna just forget about it. But then one day last week, last week I was like pulling 16 hour long days because I had a PhD seminar that was all week long and I was working. So I had no time for this. But for some reason after school I was like, let's just go. So we run over there and I pull up to like a, you know, I look at the address, Capital 3331 Capital Boulevard. I pull up to like a dealer and I go into the dealer and I'm like, hey, I'm here to look at the Ford Freestyle. And the guy, you know, they're first excited when they see me walk in. And then when they hear that I'm looking for that car, they're like, oh, no, no, that's the guy in the back. That's the guy in the back. So I get outside, and I'm there walking with Lottie and Kitty into, like, a junkyard, right? And just to give you an idea of how, you know, to use a Miami term, how shady it was, you know, how uncomfortable looking it was, the moment we started to walk towards it, uh, Charlotte, I'm going to actually get my coffee if you guys don't mind as I keep on going. The moment, the moment that we started to walk towards it, Charlotte starts to cry. I mean, that's how scary this place looked. I'm not, I'm not even joking. She started crying. So I was like, all right, listen, just get, Kitty, get in the car, right? And I'll go down there. So I'm walking through. You got, like, carcasses of, like, Greyhound buses, cars thrown all over the place. I'm walking through the mud, down a hill. I finally get to the place, and I pop my head in. And, you know, there's some, like, guys there working. Giant pit bull just walks on by me. And I'm like, hello. 
And this guy, this cross-eyed guy, big, big cross-eyed guy looks at me. And he just walks up to me. He goes, yo. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm here for the, the, Ford, uh, the Ford Freestyle. And he's like, oh, it's up the hill. And he throws me the keys. And I'm like, okay, right? So I walk up there. I get to the car, and it's even better than I imagined. It's like brand new tires. Everything worked. You know, this thing has AC for the back and the left and the right, like three different controls, CD player. I mean, everything worked. And three rows of seat, and the back seats, you know, fold in so you have all that cargo space. So when I'm going camping and stuff, roof rails, no significant scratches, and everything was working. And I turn it on. I'm like, oh, man, this is awesome. But there was no gas. And the first time I ever bought a car, and if you guys don't know, I burned four cars down. Like, one I literally lit on fire, and the three other ones I killed. But the first one that I bought, I bought it at a place without, you know, even uh, test driving the thing. And he didn't have a battery. And I bought it before, and then after I bought it, because I thought it was a steal, I bought a battery, and I could only drive it one direction, because it was broken. So I was like, oh, man, this car has to be, like, uh, it has to be like one of those, um, you know, like when they get wrecked and the, and the people salvage it. So I go back to the guy, and I'm like, hey, you know, it's perfect. I love it. I'll pay cash, you know, but I'm a little worried. You know, um, do you, can I get a Carfax? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get you a Carfax. And he, get, and he gets me a Carfax. And I was like, whoa, man, like, this car was like, I mean, clean title. All the checkups. But there was one thing that was really suspicious, and that was that the car had 87,000 miles in 2011. So I was thinking, oh, it probably got in this like, accident or something, and then he salvaged it. And he was like, no, that, this car was actually my wife's. It's been sitting in my garage because we have four different cars, and I decided to get rid of it. So I just looked at the guy in his eyes, right? Or his eye. Right, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I looked at him, and I said, listen, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm an ethics. I'm studying a... You know, I'm a PhD in ethics. I'm, I'm going to be very, very simple. If you give me my, your word that there's nothing wrong with the car, then I'll buy it. And just give me your word. And he said, I give you my word. I said, all right. I decided to buy the car. After I, you know, did the little Cuban, you know, hassling, boom, 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 trying to get the price down. I couldn't get the price down, but I did get a 30-day warranty because it was a shop, which means if it breaks down, I could just take it. So, you know, I mean, perfect deal. So part two of the story. And then you'll see why I'm telling you guys all this. You, you can keep it. You can keep it back. We're not there yet. So I get there. I get there. And I'm sitting down. It's really run down. And at this point, it's like 7.30 p.m. And Kitty's sitting in the car in this junkyard. I decided to go get Kitty, you know, because I was trying to be protective. I didn't want her to be in this type of environment. So I bring Kitty in with the baby, and they park in the garage. And I'm sitting there. And all of a sudden, this, you know, old, this old African-American gentleman comes in and sits down in front of me. And, you know, he looks at me, and he's like, oh, no, he was sitting in there when I was making the hassling. And as I was doing that, he looks at me, and he's like, what are you, a Jew? And I was like, whoa. <laughs> That's racist, right? But he actually said, I thought you said you were a pastor. I said, well, actually, actually, I am. He goes, oh, I'm a bishop. I said, oh, is that right? And he gives me his card, and I look at his card, and it says, bishop. I won't give his name, but he says, Bishop so-and-so, you know, pastor of oneness, you know, uh, uh, oneness, holiness, Pentecostal church. And I was like, ooh. I was like, you know, oneness, holiness. Basically, oneness, holiness, they reject the Trinity, and they have a whole bunch of other doctrines that are heretical. So, of course, what do you think ends up happening? We begin going at it. And at first, he really begins going at it. And... I'm sitting there like, man, I really want this car. The last thing I want is to offend this guy and then not get the car. But he starts laying it on me, calling me Nicodemus, calling me Gentile. I mean, and everything he says, he will look to the, guy, the owner, he'll look to the owner and be like, oh, look, I got the pastor's head in a spin. I got the pastor's. And he keeps doing this, and he's hurling these Bible verses that I don't even know what the context that he is. So I said, you know what? All right, fine. You know, regardless of whether I get the car, I start to, you know, to charitably go back and forth with the gentleman. And I was actually asking him to come and exegete Mark 1. Remember when we went through Mark 1? And in specific, Mark 1 had that prophecy about Jesus, the one who would come to prepare the way in the wilderness for Yahweh. Remember that? 
And then Jesus comes. So Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. But then right after that, what happens at his baptism? When Jesus is getting baptized, what happens? The Spirit descends, and you hear the Father's voice, and there you know, is a very early, early episode of the Trinity. And in addition to that, at the end of Mark, you have baptized them in the, in the what? In the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not the names. And then he starts going back and forth with me, back and forth with me, telling me that, I mean, I mean, obviously he starts showing off, telling me that he laid hands on a dead body at a hospital and brought it back to life. And I said, hey, you know, the one who's going to come claiming to be the Son of Man, he's going to do more miraculous things than Jesus did, but that doesn't mean anything. And then he's telling me about all the churches he has all over the world, the thousands upon thousands of people, and, you know, this and that, and that he's a bishop. But he ends up liking me. He thought I was very friendly and very nice, and I guess he found me um, likable. And about this time, it was 9 p.m., the person that they wanted to have come to do the notary finally arrived, and we do all the paperwork, and that was it. But I told him, look, I want to keep having this conversation with you. I gave him my number, even though it was like almost impossible to talk, talk to the guy. And honestly, he was kind of racist, telling, telling me, I mean, this stuff, I, you probably, I don't know if you ever heard of it, but there's some segments that believe that all of the Israelites were, were African and, uh, I mean, all this stuff, the son of Ham. And, and, but he was very friendly and, and it was very fun. It was funny because it was like human culture and then African-American culture. Man, man, just dancing, you know? It was fun. But it was also kind of sad because this, this gentleman denied, you know, one of, the, I mean, one of the central truths as we were singing. We were, I mean, we were even singing about, you know, you know, Father, you know, remember? I mean, the, the triune God, you know, and to deny that means he's worshiping a whole other God. So we pause the story there, and we're going to pick up as we continue. But, but you're going to see why I brought this gentleman up as it relates to what we're talking about here with the disciples, because he was assuring me that I was not a true disciple of Christ, but that I was influenced by Rome, and I was influenced by heresy, where on the other hand, I was trying to tell the gentleman that he was denying one of the, the central truths of the text. So with that said, and with that uh, uh, image paused over here, let's dive into the word. So let's look at our first point. We're going to talk about the character, the, the characters of the servants. Characters. We're going to talk about characters with an S, character without the S, and actions. The difference between characters and character, when I say characters with an S, I'm talking about people. When I say character, I'm talking about a type of people, a type of person. So, let's go on into our passage. We already read it, but let's, let's read through that. Let's read through it one more time. And he went up on the mountain and, call, and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them off to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Baranerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and, and, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, but they were saying he is out of his mind. First thing to point out, appointed the 12. Why do you think Jesus is calling 12 people to be his disciples? Why the number 12? The what? Yeah, the 12 tribes of Israel. What he wants us to be thinking about right here is the people of God, the promised people of God, the 12 tribes. You know, that what's happening right there with the appointment of the disciples is that here we have the true Israel. Then he also uses this word apostles, which we're going to get to after we um, go through this passage. But you can, you can go to the next slide. And he also says, first major point, they might be with him. So that's our first, the first thing that we learn about these characters is that they're called disciples. He calls them in this passage apostles. We're going to get to that right now. But in specific, no, you can go back. In specific, they might be with him. Here we have the image of discipleship. When Jesus came up to Peter when he was fishing. What did he tell Peter? He told Peter to 
follow me. Follow me. Be discipled by me. And here, they're described as those who might be with him. So one of the things that we see of these characters called the disciples is that they were meant to be discipled by him, to be with him, to follow him. And then the second thing we see, so we have the character, right, the appointed ones, the 12, that they might be with him. And then we have what they were supposed to do, the action. And the action we have, you can go to the next one. I can't wait until, like, technology is, I can just be like, so with here, they're called apostles. Does anyone know what the word apostles mean? Yeah, the ones who are sent out. It's like apostoleo. The ones who are sent. So he's describing them with the word disciples, those who are to be with him, to be discipled by him. But also, he calls them apostles, the ones who are going to be sent out. And the office of apostles is very unique here. We only find it with, with, with these individuals in the New Testament, and their authority is going to be given to us through the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We don't have apostles today because we can't verify our works as the apostles because one of the, um, one of the, um, one of the qualifications to be an apostle is that you had to have this you know, experience with Jesus as the disciples had. But in the term apostles, we see that Jesus is going to send these disciples out to start the church. And in specific, he charges them with this responsibility. And doesn't this look a little familiar? We have the terms to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, thinking about our former passages, why does this sound familiar? What did Jesus come to do? To what? To preach the gospel. That's what he said at the very beginning of Mark. He came to preach the gospel. The kingdom, you know, the, the kingdom was near. And then he came to preach the gospel himself. But then also, the apostles were to have authority to cast out demons. There's the word authority. And remember, what Mark is doing the first half of the book is he's trying to establish the authority of the Son of God. And this authority is seen in his disciples. And one of the ways that it's seen is that they do what? They cast out, they cast out demons. And has Jesus done that at this point in, in the gospel? Does anyone remember yeah, remember he was casting out demons? And he, and he was also doing what? He was, he was preaching. And then after he was preaching, we usually saw him do casting, but also healing, which this is, I mean, in my mind, this is another form of healing here, the casting out demons. And in chapter 6 of Mark, um, the writer's also going to tell us that they had a responsibility to anoint the sick. But what we see here is healing. And I don't think these things, I mean, the pattern that I've, I've been wanting you guys to see in 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 the book so far, is that these things are not separated. You don't do one or the other. Jesus doesn't do one or the other. He does both. Why? Because healing is preaching and teaching. I mean, if we're going to boil it down into, a, I think they're called idioms, I mean, practice what you preach. I mean, what, what we have here is that the healing is part of the teaching. I mean, they go together. So what we have is the character these characters, the characters of the uh, disciples apostle are the 12 that Jesus appoints to be with him. And that what they would go and then do, the actions that they would take, is to preach or to teach. And then also to have the authorities to go out and to expel demons. Or in other words, to heal. To reinforce that their teaching comes with authority by the actions that people would see upon them. So back to um, the bishop. So the bishop was telling me, basically the reason he was pointing towards, I mean, all these things about raising the dead and stuff, you know, all these, all these instances of people calling him and being touring all over the world is because he wanted me to see that he has authority. And he also didn't like the fact that I didn't want to call him bishop, but I would call him bishop, or later on I would start using his first name because I didn't recognize that he had the authority. I also told him about, you know, bishop, elder, uh, over, uh, bishop, elder, and, um, and pastor, but he didn't want to have another. It was very difficult to talk to him. He would just throw me like these little random scriptural darts, and I was like, where is, where is this guy even going? But what he wanted to see, he wanted me to see that he had this authority, and this authority was confirmed by the type of actions that he was taking. But there was one problem. The problem is, is that he was worshiping a whole, I mean, he was worshiping 
a false god because God is trying. We see that all throughout the canon. And in addition to that, his belief system, oneness Pentecostalism, leads to some real, you know, real tricky, real tricky convictions. I mean, we would say that it's 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 heresy. I mean, we don't like that word heresy because it's like an ugly, ugly word. But heresy is basically this type of false teaching. So the church has always taught against something called modalism, right? And and these other heresies about like Arianism, like they they have condemned people who say that Jesus was not. God, and they also have condemned people that said that God just kind of appears in different modes. In other words, he appeared as the Father in the Old Testament, and then he appears as the Son, Jesus, and then after that he appears as the Son, uh, as the Spirit, but, you know, he's not trying. So that's what this guy was affirming, and then he was also saying stuff like this. He was saying stuff that he could forgive sins, that he was an angel, uh, but also that you had to be baptized in the name of, of Jesus to be, to be saved. I mean, you, you had to uh, reject the Trinity. You had to repent. And what repentance looked like was that you got baptized in the name of Jesus. Because in the book of Acts, you'll see that they baptize in the name of Jesus. But the problem with that is, is at, the end of Ma- at the end of Matthews, you, you know, you, they're called to go out into the world and to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. So he has a problem with with that type of passage, but in my mind, you know, whether you're baptizing in the name of Jesus or in the triune formula, you're still baptizing someone. You know, it, but also what they believe is they believe that the act of baptism itself saves someone. That you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Whereas Baptists, we believe that the act of baptism is a sign that you have already been baptized by the Spirit. And this is an issue of, of uh, Jesus' authority. Jesus tells you to do this, and we want to show the world in baptism. We want to show them the gospel. Because you hear the gospel preached, but in communion, in the, in the two ordinances, communion and baptism, you get to see what the gospel looks like. As if God is calling us to use our other senses to engage them in understanding what the gospel is. So he had a problem with the term orthodoxy, right teaching, but then he also had a problem with orthopraxy, which is right living. So remember, teaching, healing. His teaching, he had some serious problems. But then even in living, they believe in the holiness doctrine, which is you, your life has to look a certain way. Some of them will even get to the point where you have to uh, have a certain type of clothes to go to church on Sunday, a certain type of haircuts. I mean, they get pretty deep because they'll say, well, you know, God calls us to holiness. But the problem is that is that it smells like what? It smells like legalism. And I don't, I don't, I'm not surprised that all this stuff, you know, comes out of these type of, uh, these type of foundational beliefs that become perverted. But again, let's pause, let's pause the bishop. So we're talking about the disciples. And we have already talked about love, right? Remember we talked about love and, and what love looks like and what is love, this type of self-sacrifice that Jesus exemplifies, the love that we can see in, in Jesus coming and loving us. Well, today we're going to talk about another really big, big word, and that's beauty. We're going to talk about what beauty is. Because in specific... I think one of the calls of being a disciple is to be beautiful. And in mind of what the bishop said, and in mind of the passage that we just read, that again showed us this emphasis on preaching, teaching, and healing, we're going to go to another passage that we actually don't find in the Gospel of Mark, but I think is really appropriate. Now you guys, you guys know how sermons come together during the week for me is always to me like, the most awesome surprise, how just these things like this, you know, just come together. It's amazing. So this week I've been in an Augustine seminar, eight hours a day of Augustine. We've had to read all of these works by Augustine. And the type of works that we're reading, what Augustine is trying to do, and works like On Christian Doctrine and the Enchiridion, is show that you have to have right teaching, and that that right teaching gets expressed in right living. So what it's not telling us is that you have to live rightly to be saved, but that God saves and that the way that we get to worship God, that we're free to worship God, is to love, you know, to love, our, to love God by loving our fellow man. So we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, a piece of the Sermon on the Mount, because we don't find the Sermon on the Mount here. And our professor had us read the Sermon on the Mount this week, and I was like, man, this fits the passage perfectly, because I was wondering, what am I going to do with the calling of the Twelve? I mean, so Jesus calls the 12 disciples. Well, what am I going to tell the congregation about? And then I look, and the way that our passage here in Mark opens up is that Jesus goes up to the what? 
He goes up to the mountain. Well, here, turn with me from Mark 3, turn to Matthew 5. So, so far, we've hit on a bunch of the major topics of, of the gospel so far. But one thing we haven't talked a lot about is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And if you can recall, at the very beginning of Mark, when Jesus is saying why he's coming to preach the gospel, we have that reference there of the kingdom of God, but it's something we really haven't been able to talk about. And it just so happens to fit that Matthew's 5 treats this, and it's a really good transition. So this part of the sermon is called character, the singular, the type of people, the beautiful ones, the beautiful ones. So look with me at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 11, and look how it starts in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So to give you kind of like a parallel between the Gospels, although, although this, uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, isn't in Mark, when I looked over at Luke, Luke actually has the appointing of the twelve right before this, right before the, the Sermon on the, in the Valley. In Matthew, he has this, the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the most famous passages in Christianity. This is where Jesus is there. This is the later half of his Galilean ministry, and he's going to teach about what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And this is how he starts. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. There's that image then of, of sitting underneath the Messiah, of being discipled by him. And he opened his mouth and taught them by saying, and, and just soak in these words. Just soak in how beautiful this sounds. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, their, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall, shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So my professor assigned this text, and in specific he assigned how, a sermon that Augustine preached on this text over a thousand years ago. And I see this transition with our passage opening up with the mountain. Here this passage is opening up in the mountain, but also in Luke. This is what follows uh, the sermon. Uh, this is what follows the appointing on the twelve. So, at one point during our discussion, the bishop said something about how he may look ugly, but what he was teaching was beautiful. And I wasn't going to tell him that he was ugly. You know? I don't want to get it the wrong way. Uh, but when I started meditating on this passage, I was like, well, man, something is really, really ugly. And let me flesh these terms out, because I, I don't know if there's a term like this for, in Tagalog, but in Spanish, we can, use, we, were, we can use the word beautiful in another way besides just physical beauty. So, you know, it, we could say that, uh, you, know, que li, you know, que lindo. You know, how, how, how pretty that is. An action. So I didn't know if there was something like that in Tagalog. I started... You know, re uh, searching, and my, my mispronunciation, you'll have to forgive me, but I found things like paano uh, pangit. How do you pronounce it? Pangit. What does that mean? Okay. Now, when you say that, what are you talking about? Okay, physical, just physical ugliness? Okay. Not necessarily, what, what do you mean not necessarily? Is there... Okay, so, wait, so can you use it for bad inner qualities? Okay, so then that's a parallel to like in, in Spanish. Like, you know, if my daughter was just misbehaving, like yesterday she was behaving so badly. She was behaving so badly because I gave her some of my Starbucks Frappuccino, which I'll never do ever again in my life. <laughs> because on top of that, she didn't have a nap all day, and it was like 4 p.m. But she was behaving so badly that I know if my mom was there, my mom would say, que, you know, que, que, que feo, que fea. You know, like how ugly it is that you're acting. This inner quality. Good. So I'm happy to see that there's this type of parallel, and you're going to see why. Does anyone here have a Bible in Tagalog? Uh, can, you pull up? can you pull up for me? Any, does anyone else have one? Yeah, I don't speak Tagalog, but, but I wanted to exegete um, the passage, so I started looking at different, um, 
different Bibles in Tagalog, different translations, and we're, we're going to get to them, but you're going to see why. Because this blessed, blessed, you know, this type of passage is known as the Beatitudes. Does anyone know what the Beatitudes mean? It was not helpful that in all the translations I used, they didn't use that as a header in Tagalog, because then I wouldn't be able to get that word and see how they translate it. But does anyone know what the word Beatitudes means? No, right? All right, good, good. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna pull that apart. So does anyone yet have um, a Tagalog Bible? Okay, you can, keep, you can keep opening it. I want you to, when you do get it, I want you to open it to Matthew 5, verse, verse, verse 3. So when you got your Tagalog Bible, I want you to open it there. But in the Greek, but yeah, chapter, Matthew 5, verse, verse 3. In the Greek, we have this word makarios, okay? Well, now, what word do you have? What's the first word that you have? All right, wait, you have to say it slow because I actually have to follow. You can go to the next slide. You can go to the next slide. I actually have to follow, so you're going to have to say it slow for me. Okay, say it again. Mapalad? Lad. Okay, okay, good. So, okay, good. Actually, good. So, this one right here, right? Mapalad ang? So, so, that I got from the, don't laugh at me, Pagang Magandang Balita Biblia. Okay, but wait, I had, but this is, this is funny because that was what the one I pulled up and I was like, ooh, I don't like how they're translating it, but it could just be my understanding of the word. I started researching that word and the definitions I got were lucky or fortunate. So that's what it means, that's what it means, lucky? Uh, I don't like that word. That word, that word is not conveying what's happening in the text. You're not, Jesus is not saying you're fortunate because of this. You're lucky because of this. And this smells to me, this smells to me of, okay, yes, it could be, it could be, but, but the, my problem that I had with the word is the main connotation, the main usage is like fortunate, like, you know, you're blessed if you experienced, you know, uh, this type of, you know, pain and suffering. And I was like, I don't think that's what the passage is saying. So I went to another version, and okay, here we go again, ang salita nang Dios. And here they, they you know, say that this is the Sermon on the Mount. And the word that they use... Oh, does anyone else have another translation that uses a different word? Does anyone else have, have another Tagalog Bible that uses a different word? No? All right, we'll continue here. So this is the word they use. Pinagpala uh, ang. Uh, and that word means holy or very good. Is that correct? Ah, I still didn't like... I didn't still like that one either. Because with the first one... With Mabalad, um, it has that connotation of fortunate. But then in this one, it's talking about very good or holy. Now, now I think that what Jesus is teaching here is an ethical standard. He's telling us this is how, you, how you're supposed to live. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But it's not just, you know, a, this type of, you know, this is what you have to be like because the standards in there are impossible. Nobody here can be like the person described in here. Although Jesus is giving us this direction of this is what your life is supposed to look like. But the problem I had with this word, holy or very good, is it's still not getting at what the text is trying to tell us. So I began to do more word studies, and some of the other words I got was uh, maganda, that one already, oh yeah, I got maganda, which means what? Very beautiful, okay, you're going to have to break that down. Remember in English, you have how many words for beautiful? Attractive, cute, beautiful. Okay, so what, it, what type of beautiful? What type of beautiful? So it can be all that. That, okay, so, so then here were other words that I got. I got ma'aling uh, dog. What does that mean? Does, what was that? Okay, so definitely not that one, right? Well, I got, I got winsome. I got winsome. In other words, like, uh, you know, that, that gentleman from the car, you know, the bishop, he was, he was winsome, right? Other ones I got, kai big i big. What is that one? That means lovely. Okay. Ma'aling dog, ka'akit, What does that mean? I got, I got, I got charming. Right now. Um, and then I got Messiah. Masaya. What's Masaya mean? Oh, what type of happy? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah, I know that one was on there. And then I got to this version. This is the version, the last version I looked at was from the International Bible Society. 
And then they said, my papa lad ang. Man, you guys got a lot of A's. Look at that. Bam, 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 bam. There's a lot of A's in Tagalog, right? Ma papa lad ang, which, which means blessed. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? How is that different from any of these other words? It means better? Okay, so I'm going to tell you what this word meant. This, this, this was one of... Okay, philosophy. Have you taken philosophy yet? I'm looking at you, Paul. I'm pointing at you. I'm pointing you in front of everyone. Have you taken philosophy yet? Okay, the basic kind. Did you study the ancients? Plato, Aristotle. So for them, the fundamental question of the ancients was how do we have the happy life? That was the question that they asked. How do we have the happy life? And people will hear that, and they may think like a type of happiness, like how can I have like a happy life? You know, I can be happy all the time and have lots of pleasure. That's not what this text is supposed to be telling us. It's not our understanding of happy. It's the ancients' understanding of happy. So it's called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes comes from the word beatus. Beatus means beautiful, happy, and it, could all, yeah, and it means blessed. So what we have here then, go back to the passage. So the reason it's called the Beatitudes, the happy, the beautiful, is because it starts with this word blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. But this is what's important. Blessed, in this, in this context, blessed doesn't mean like very fortunate. It's not just talking about like a holiness. It's saying that this is the beautiful, happy life. For them, happy was the beautiful life. And let me see if I can help you understand beauty. This is not beauty, although my wife thinks it's beauty. Maybe it is a little bit. No. But beauty, to the, to the ancients' understanding, beauty is imagine a painting. Imagine a beautiful painting. Have you ever walked by a beautiful painting? Did you, did you guys go to France? Did you, go to, did you go to any of the, the galleries? Okay. And there's a really good gallery here in North Carolina, the free one, by the way. Really, really good. When you see a beautiful painting, what happens is as you walk by that beautiful painting and you see it, beauty has the ability to pull you in. When you see something beautiful, and it could, it could be a beautiful person, but when you see something beautiful, it has this ability to pull you in. And with art, the way it will work is it will pull you in, and then you will look at it. So for the ancients, the idea of beauty had this gravity, this weight. So beautiful is this bigger idea. So when he's saying blessed, he's saying something like, this is what the beautiful life looks like. So that's why it was really hard for me, but, but, I, but I wanted you to try to understand from that context, the beautiful life, the type of life that draws people in, the type of life that catches people's attention. Because I don't want you guys to read that and think that this is simply like, this is what my life has to look like so that Jesus can accept me and I can go to heaven. Or this is what the holy life looks like. Yes, this is holiness. But the reason he's using the word blessed is he wants to connect it to this is what the beautiful life looks like. So the reason I went into the, the Tagalog and did these word studies is I wanted to try to find a word that was like that. Beautiful. So if you have a term, and that's why I brought up the whole, you know, que feo, how ugly that action is. Because if there's a parallel in Tagalog, then that's the idea you want to be thinking about is, you know, this is what the beautiful life looks like. And if you have a word in Tagalog that communicates that beauty, this is what he's telling us. And we're going to see the reason for this in the next passage. Only other things I'll point, because we don't have time, you'll notice that he opens up with this mentioned kingdom of heaven. Then he goes through these different mentions of blessed, and he closed with the kingdom of heaven. In all of these, it's blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And we see this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It starts with those Right? Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are humble and acknowledge God. That's how it starts. That's how the Ten Commandments starts, doesn't it? Those who acknowledge the first four commandments are about God and worshiping God. They should be comforted. And this is all very comforting for us. It tells us this is what the beautiful life looks like. The meek, that's not what the world tells us. The world doesn't tell us that the beautiful people are the meek. The world tells us that the beautiful people are those that we see on TV, the celebrities that have wealth and get to drive around and do whatever they want. That's what they think Blessed is. But what we see here Jesus telling us is that the meek are the ones that are blessed. Are the ones that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Not hungry and thirsty for you know, acquiring physical possessions. 
And those are the ones that get satisfied. And, and that's the truth that anyone, you know, that you'll see experience. You can get as, many, as much riches and as much property as you can, but it will not satisfy the essential thirst that God has put within the heart of man for him. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What it's telling us here is that we see the God, we see God with, our, with the heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are the, and essentially, who is the son of God? The one who comes to bring peace to humanity. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have a close to these beatitudes, and in this, the persecuted transitions us to here, where I think he's talking specifically to the disciples, but also it may be us. And as, as um, Pastor Ken was praying, we are going into this age in our society in America where Christians will continue to become blacklisted, specifically for their view on things like, you know, true sexuality, right? The way that God had designed marriage. I worked in the marriage campaign. You guys heard some of the stuff I had to experience. I had to experience pastors who had their cars covered in feces. I had to experience two billboards that we put up that were smeared in, 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 that were smeared in graffiti and also they tried to light on fire. I ordered 65,000 yard signs. In the first two weeks, half of them were destroyed. In one county in Guilford, they torched thousands of them. They put up articles against us online to try to make us look like you know, we were these hate mongers. They would not get together with us and have debates. We had people coming into our office with mangled type signs. I had pictures of lesbian couples stealing signs from the front of churches, covering them with cat feces, and tweeting me photos. But even then, he tells them, while others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So first, we don't want to belittle the type of persecution that people are going to experience overseas. There's people who are literally dying, specifically in the 21st century, and the I mean, you have people that are dying for the faith. I mean, just look at some of the reports from international news of what happens to Christians in Africa. But at the same time, persecution does happen to people who utter all kinds of evil against you. And I had, oh, you can imagine the type of evil that I had against me. And I would try to even invite these people into my home. They would know where I live, and, and I would want to feed them and make dinner for them and have these type of debates and dialogues with them, but they never accepted my offer. They would just always tell me how I was just a hate monger. But this is the key phrase, that the persecution is on his account. And what he tells us is to rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus here is telling the disciples, this is exactly what's going to happen to the disciples. They're going to be persecuted. But also, does anyone remember how our Mark passage ends? How did the Mark passage end? Does anyone remember? It's kind of like those little sentences. I, was, I actually took them out. But then when I read this, I said, let me put them back in. And the way it ends is that Jesus' family comes out and says, he's crazy. Maybe that's your experience, because I know Baptists are pretty blacklisted from what I hear in, in the Philippines, that people look upon them as like a cult or something like that, right? Because it's majority Roman Catholic. I remember the first time I told my mom I was going to seminary. I mean, she wanted me to be a doctor. I was, I was actually going to be an otolaryngologist, and the Lord called me into ministry, and she was like, oh, man, what, what is this? what's happening? My smart son, I'm not going to have my retirement home on the beach. And I said, Mom, I said, Mom, let me quote, let me, let me, you know, quote C.S. Lewis. Why do you want to play in a mud puddle when you can have a vacation on the shores and the endless eternity of the seas? In other words, that, you know, house on the beach, that's nothing. That's, that's a puddle of mud compared to what God has in store of us, and that's what I want to go do. I don't care where the Lord leads me. I want to be able to preach the gospel and live the gospel. So let's turn to our last passage because I don't want, I don't want to keep you guys for too long. So our, the next section of our text, the third part of our sermon, is called Action, the Beauty Marks. So in specific, what we saw is we saw what the beautiful ones looked like. The kingdom of heaven... This is what the beautiful ones look like, the blessed ones, the happy ones. They're persecuted, but they have, you know, they, they desire to see God with their heart. And then this helps us with the additional context. You can go back, go back to A. Uh, oh, no, yeah, keep going. You can skip this. Go to the next one, next one, next one. Okay, last part of the sermon, action. We looked at the characters, the 12, 
the disciples who are called to be with him and to preach and to heal. And then we looked at what the character of the kingdom of heaven looks like, the meek, the humble, the ones who thirst for righteousness. And now we're going to look at what the action of those people who are, who are of that kingdom, what the action is that they're supposed to partake. And this is beauty mark. Does anyone here have like a really weird beauty mark? I'm not going to make you tell me. I just want to know. Because I got a funny one. I got one that is like the shape of a heart. It's a heart right here on, on my belly. But you can only see it if I, got, if I get sun. But if I get sun, I get this like weird, perfect little heart thing. And that's my beauty mark. So our passage, verse 13 to 16, we're going to look at what the beauty mark of the disciples are. So we already know that this is the beautiful ones. But what is the mark of beauty? We already looked at the mark of discipleship to love. What is the beautiful mark? Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we see what the beautiful ones look like, and what are the beautiful marks? Well, one, they're the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Who here cooks with salt? Right. Everyone always tells me whenever I make my food, like, man, your, rice, your white rice is really, really good. Why is that? Because I put salt. And I put some uh, olive oil. But salt of the earth, this is a really good illustration because back then this had a whole lot of functions. I mean, you didn't just use it to preserve meat, to you know, prevent it from spoiling, but you also used it to heal wounds. And what he's telling us here is that they are to be the salt of the earth. And when Augustine reads this passage, he's thinking of teaching, right teaching. Like I'm sitting in there with the bishop, and the way that I can be salt, the way that I can be healing is to preach the truth, regardless of what happens to me and I lose the car that I really, really wanted. And this is how Augustine, this is how Augustine reads it. And I'm, I'm just going to read it because I thought it was beautiful. Hence the savorless salt is good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. It is not, therefore, he who suffers persecution, but he who is rendered savorless by the fear of persecution that is trod underfoot of men. For it is only one who is utmost that can be trodden underfoot. But he is not utmost who, however many things he may suffer in his body on the earth, yet has his heart fixed in heaven. So if salt wasn't salty, what would you do with it? Nothing. It would be useless. I mean, you'd throw it out to be there with the dirt if salt isn't salty. But then in addition to that, the word saltiness. Uh, I don't like sweets. I don't like sweets, desserts. But I love salt. I probably put way too much salt on my food. But I love when it's savory. And it's kind of funny because at work, whenever we're doing digital projects and I think something's a really good idea, I literally start doing this. Mm, like that. And what I'm basically saying is, that's yummy. Like, like honey. Like molasses dripping from your lips. Just delicious. You know? It's savory. It's salty. It's good. After that, he says, light of the world. And my friend, my classmate, noted that one of the reasons he liked this illustration is it's a light on a hill, a light on a, on a mountain, a beacon. And how does this passage open up? With who teaching on what? With Jesus teaching on the mountain. Just, and, and doesn't that sound like Jesus? Can you guys think of anywhere in the scripture where Jesus is called the light of the world? I mean, we have a song light of the world. Blah, 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 blah. I can't sing, so all right. But, but we do have in John, Jesus is called the light of the world, who will cast out the darkness. And what we then do in our teaching, in our saltiness, but also in the luminance, in bringing light to darkness, we go to where evil is to heal it with the salt of right teaching, but also bring luminance to bear upon the dark shadows of the world by healing. And, and what I think is really interesting about this text, about the light shining, is it says, you know, be light so that they may see your good works. So that they can see the good works. And why would they see your good works? You're not, you're not called to be a show-off, but why are they to see your good works? So they can give glory to your Father. 
And that's that type of healing, to show that the word that you're preaching has authority, that it's real. And when you teach, you have to do. You don't do so that you can earn favor with God because you're all sinners, right? We, it won't be until we, uh, till God comes and we're fully redeemed and that our bodies are recovered to the state that they were intended to be that we won't have to worry about sinning anymore. For now, we have this deep problem of sin. But we go out into the world and we teach the truth and we do the truth. We show them that we love them and that God loves them by our actions, not so that we can get into heaven, but that we can show how grateful we are for the healing and the love that God has shown upon us. So, last comment on the bishop. The reason why I didn't agree with him about beauty is because what he was teaching was false. It was ugly in that sense. And the beauty marks are right teaching, orthodoxy, and right action, orthopraxy. That we're saved by Christ and we're freed to go and love the world. Not have to worry about how many good things do I have to do to earn God's favor. But God says that you have been healed. And then he loves me. And that love, you know, it's like another one of my classmates had a really good illustration when we were talking about repentance. He was like, yeah, a lot of times people think repentance is like you have a cup and you toss whatever's in the cup out. Like that's what repentance looks like. I got this bad stuff, let me throw it out. But he's like, no. His understanding of repentance is you have this cup with this thing that you want to get out and you just put it under water. And what happens if you keep the water on? Yeah, and it will get to the point where then all that's remaining is water. And I, I think that there was something beautiful in that because what it's telling you is that when you're just focused and just, I mean, fall in love with Christ and you want to worship him in your life and in your teaching and the proclamation of your word and you don't care if you get persecuted at work or with your friends or with your family because of it, but you want to show the love of God, right? the repentance of focusing on his will just begins to overflow. That's been my experience is that the love of God just begins to overflow and I can't contain it. I have to share it. So what are the beauty marks? The beauty marks, so we know the beautiful ones, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. The beauty marks I think of as a savory, radiant life. You know, it's a life that is savory, that is delicious. People want to eat whatever it is that you're eating. You bring light to their shadows and their darkness, and who wants to live in the dark? So, summary. We looked at the characters, the servants, the disciples, the ones who were called to be with Jesus, but that Jesus was also going to send out so that they could preach and then they can heal. And then, that was in Mark 3, and then we looked at Matthew 5, and what we looked at Matthew 5, we learned a, a little bit more about their character and their actions. And in specific about their character, he told us that they're going to be the beautiful ones. So what, what, what word in Tagalog would you guys want to use? Now that you have heard the sermon, what word do we want to use to describe what the blessed life looks like, what the beautiful life looks like? What do you think? Would we want to use the word for beautiful? Because you can see, you can, you guys can see now why I had a, I was uncomfortable with the holy life. I mean, it's that. That's true in a sense. But like the favored life. I mean, the lucky life, uh, the beautiful, the blessed life. In the West, we have a background for this idea. I don't know if there's something like that parallel in the East, because there's a whole different context. But what we're, what we're being told is that we are to live the beatus, the happy, the blessed, the beautiful, the delicious, the savory, the salty, the masarap, that's the one I use. I use the masarap life, the yump, because we love food, but I mean, we want to live the delicious life, and we want people, just like we want people to come here and feast with us, we want our lives in their life to have them want to feast in the masarap, so that we can, uh, we can, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, is it salamat po? So that we could just show our gratitude for the feast that God has given us and, and the ability for us to go and share that. And that's really what all that is. That feasting is so that we can share. And the food is just a symbol of our desire to be a community. So the charge that we close today is that I would ask you to live the delicious and radiant, beautiful life. You can bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you had shown us how beautiful something like a blood-stained, splintered, nailed cross can be. Father, not because uh, there was beauty in, in the tears and the sweat and the blood and the vinegar, 
But Father, what had come from that is the freedom to worship and to feast by you and to share that love with our fellow man. Father, we pray that you, your spirit, Lord, may fill us in full, that we may not be afraid of persecution, that we as a beacon, as the church, as families, as a body, may go out into the world and like a lighthouse or like seasoned preservative foods, Lord, that we may come and, and ask people to come to us and to feast richly in the word, Christ Jesus, that you have provided the world. Amen. Please arise.